Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. My guest today is someone whose work I started following when she wrote an article in Pacific Standard called Is Medical Gender Bias Killing Young Women? Maya Dusenberry is a writer, editor of Feministing.com, and author of the new book, Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick, which explores how gender bias in the medical system is harming women. In 2013, she became editorial director of the trailblazing website Feministing, where Maya has written about a range of important feminist topics, including abortion stigma, rape culture, masculinity, economic justice, and occasionally her favorite TV shows since 2009. I think we share one of those favorite TV shows based on a Facebook post I wrote and a blog you recently wrote. We'll talk about that. Uh, Maya has also been a fellow at Mother Jones Magazine and an online columnist at Pacific Standard. Her work has appeared in publications like HuffPo, Cosmopolitan, Bitch Magazine, TheAtlantic.com, as well as the anthology The Feminist Utopia Project. Before becoming a full-time journalist, Maya worked at the National Institute for Reproductive Health. She is a Minnesota native who received her BA from Carleton College in 2008 and is based in the Twin Cities. Maya, thank you for joining me today in the busy aftermath of a book coming out for Making Time. I so appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we've chatted before on the phone because we have so many um, similar interests and similar concerns about women's health. And in uh, my last book, I have a section called Dis, Dismissed and Misunderstood. So I'd love to take our readers back because, you know, so many people write books based on theory. You wrote a book based on your own personal experience. If you don't mind sharing with a deep dive into how you got on this path of women and um, gender bias. I think our readers would so appreciate hearing that. Yeah, yeah definitely. My listeners, not readers, our readers. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started thinking about this topic uh, about five years ago when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, before that, I was a feminist writer and had a background in reproductive health, but really was kind of focused on reproductive health and, and wasn't really thinking more broadly about how sexism might be affecting women's health more holistically. Um, but once I got RA, I, you know, as a journalist and curious person, I, I wanted to learn sort of as much about what was happening in my own body as I wanted to hear sort of why these autoimmune diseases are becoming more common and, and was really kind of surprised to realize that, you know, there isn't a lot of public awareness about autoimmune diseases. And also it seemed like the medical system was not very good at recognizing them and diagnosing them. And yes, my own experience was pretty good in terms of getting a diagnosis pretty quickly and easily and um, never felt like my symptoms were not taken seriously. But I started hearing the stories of so many other autoimmune patients who are not so lucky and really face those really long diagnostic delays and feel like their symptoms are minimized or just brushed off as stress. And that, that kind of inspired me down this path to kind of looking at er other areas in medicine where similar dynamics seem to be at play. 
So one of the common themes that seems to be rising to the top in medicine is that many of the medical conditions that affect primarily women also happen to be the ones that are commonly overlooked or dismissed or misdiagnosed. And autoimmune disease being one of those, some autoimmune diseases are a nine to one ratio. I think RA is one, lupus is one, Hashimoto's is one, but in general, about 75% of people who suffer from autoimmune disease are women. I just read a staggering set of statistics, which is that in the United States, at least on average, it takes a woman five doctors and 4.6 years to get an autoimmune disease diagnosis. And 45% of women are considered chronic complainers those first couple of years they're going to the doctor. Basically, like it's, you know, it's emotional, it's in their head. So you didn't have this experience, thankfully. What was it that made you aware? Were you going to Facebook groups or chat groups? Where did you start hearing this rumbling that something was up in this world of autoimmune disease? Um, I think um, I didn't actually end up getting super involved in, in online patient communities, but did just sort of learn more about autoimmune diseases. I read the autoimmune epidemic um, by forgetting her name right now, Donna somebody. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The woman who had, yeah, she has an unusual last name, Nakazawi, I think. We'll put it in the, yeah. we'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I th- and I think that that book does touch on on some of the challenges of getting diagnosed. Um, and then, I, I mean, I really sort of fairly quickly, just through my experiences of my friends that I started hearing about, um, you know, lots of women with autoimmune diseases, but also other conditions who felt like they were sort of getting dismissed, um, started kind of collecting those kind of stories. And, you know, as often happens, once you start sort of tuning into something or like asking around uh, if other people have similar experiences, you know, very quickly sort of realized that like, it seemed like almost every woman that I knew who had a serious health problem had a story like that of, of really feeling like they weren't taken very seriously so the, the those statistics on autoimmune diseases were were very compelling and but also it seemed like you know that that was sort of the tip of the iceberg it seemed like almost everybody was having these kind of stories yep i mean 10 years on average for an endometriosis diagnosis the statistic i believe you point out in the article i mentioned in the beginning 5000 more women a year in hospital dying of heart attack than men because our pain is more likely to be dismissed as anxiety or stress. So we don't get the cardiac workup. So, you know, we, you have a lens as a journalist who's worked in reproductive health. I have a lens as a doctor who works in reproductive and women's health in general. So, you know, the biggest impetus for me really going to medical school as a midwife was these stories that I was hearing over and over again or witnessing um, when I had to take a woman into the hospital of the um, the sort of systemic abuses. And there are, as you experience, really so many wonderful individual human beings who are doctors, but there's something going on in the system. And one of the things that you talk about in your book, you kind of go back into some of the wonderful old books like Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English on... Um, uh, which is midwives and nurses, some of the history. Let's talk about some of the history of medicine and how that's gotten us to where we are now from your perspective as a journalist. 
Yeah, I think this was um, one of the things that made me sort of initially sort of convinced that there was something more going on here because I, I felt like, you know, on the, on the one hand, I was, as a feminist writer, I was not surprised to kind of hear that women's voices didn't seem to be trusted as much as men's in the medical system because obviously there, you know, that happens across a wide range of realms. But I was sort of a little bit surprised as like a younger millennial woman. Like I think a lot of those women who were telling me these stories had this sense that it was sort of strange to be in this position where their reports of their symptoms weren't being taken seriously because they kind of had this expectation that they would be. Um, and and I, I did really kind of come to believe through the, that research and that this the history of medicine, which, you know, I hadn't been particularly familiar with before and, and this history of hysteria and how hysteria has evolved, you know, really came to appreciate how this kind of stereotype seems to be like gotten sort of ingrained and entrenched in the system in this sort of self-perpetuating way, um, kind of over and above even the kind of general dismissal of women that is so pervasive in our culture. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. So when I started to study midwifery, it was in 1981. I was actually 15. And so some of the first books I got were Women's History of Medicine, things like Gynecology by Mary Daly and Barbara uh, and Deirdre's book, which is Midwives and Nurses. And of course, the early versions of Our Bodies, Ourselves. And um, to me, the kind of almost like the history of medicine and how medicine is currently practiced are really inseparable. And when you even go back into like the 1500s and you read some people like Descartes or Bacon, and they're talking about how women's bodies are like the earth to be, I mean, they use this language like to be raped and plundered as men need this Mm -hmm. incredible separation between, or this incredible identification of like women and the earth as separate from science and knowledge and intelligence, you start to see the roots of how Western medicine evolved. And it wasn't really that long ago that, I mean, even in the 1970s, I think it was something like 7 or 9% of women were doctors. And, and one of the reasons we were considered unfit for medical school is that we were, I'm doing air quotes here, unreliable We were considered emotionally unreliable and physically unreliable for a week of the month during our menstruation, which we might just not show up or night. It's it's so entrenched, you know? Right. So were you surprised to to find that as a journalist? Yeah, I think this is sort of unforgivable because I, you know, have been a feminist writer and so I shouldn't have been surprised, but I, I think I did have that sort of misperception that like, just because, well, like I knew that, you know, that as yeah, as you said, even in the seventies, it you know, the medical system was hugely, hugely male dominated. Um, but I think I sort of had this sense that like, oh, you know, a few decades would have been long enough to kind of undo all of this long history of of sexism in medicine. Um, even though, yeah, I should have sort of known. But I think one of one of the things that I really came to appreciate through the research was that I didn't know it before was realizing just how slowly medicine changes and um, how hard it is to kind of integrate new knowledge into the medical school curricula and 
that I think was surprising as a lay person who kind of had this association of medicine with science, you know, and, and really felt like assumed that it would be sort of on the cutting edge and constantly progressing. And, and so kind of coming face to face with the fact that some of these, like, as you say, really, really old ancient myths about women still do impact the care that we receive, despite the fact that it's 2018, um, just because they've sort of been passed down generation by generation, that that yeah, that was definitely one of the the most surprising things that I that I realized. I think it's so interesting too that I really saw this in medical training. You know, half of all OB GYN residencies now are filled with women, at least. So some residency programs are even more; they're ninety percent women. And mm-hmm. what's so interesting is how. Even though there are more women, women can internalize some of the same sort of dominator philosophies, right? It's not just who's doing it. It's, it's sort of, it doesn't really matter what sex you are. The sort of genderization can happen to mm-hmm. anyone. And some people have asserted that women, because when we go through medical school, we almost have to prove that we aren't that stereotype, almost go to the extreme of almost adopting some of those um, behaviors. It's really interesting. So, you know, even though we've had so many more women in OB for so long, we're still seeing some of the same, and gynecology, some of the same old values perpetuated. And that's been a little bit distressing for me to watch, actually. It's changing, but, but, but not, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And I keep getting that question from people since the books come out, you know, if, if I think that there's a big difference between male and female physicians. And, um, I, I kind of just have anecdotal evidence from, from the interviews I did that I, you know, I do think that there was certainly lots of women who had experiences feeling dismissed by, by women in medicine. And I, I think my personal opinion is, is just that I, since I really came to appreciate that this is like such a systemic problem and, and, really a lot about unconscious bias. I I don't think that there's necessarily a huge difference. Although, yeah, I agree that you sort of would hope there would be more of a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were some of the biggest unconscious biases that you felt like you uncovered that, that also that surprised you? Well, you know, I mean, I, I touched a little bit on sort of the, the way that gender bias intersects with other biases that obviously are very prevalent in medicine. And I think there's, I mean, you can (laughs) tell me, but I think that there's sort of a, seems to be a growing recognition within the profession that we need to do some more like training around implicit bias around gender and race and class and um, weight. I, I was very struck by the, the discrimination and stigma that a lot of overweight patients face I also just kind of struck by how, you know, as I, I lay out the sort of problems being this knowledge gap and this trust gap and how the lack of knowledge about women's health and their symptoms kind of, in some sense, creates the stereotype that they are hypochondriacs and hysterical because whenever a woman goes into the doctor's office and complains of symptoms that go unexplained, that sort of reinforces this perception that women are prone to psychogenic symptoms or so it, it, yeah, I sort of, it was surprising to see how, or to appreciate that, that this unconscious stereotype that 
women's symptoms are sort of likely to be all in their head was kind of created and perpetuated by the fact that we just don't have a lot of knowledge about women's health. And there is this gap where we've kind of focused a lot of clinical research on understanding men's bodies and the conditions that disproportionately affect them and and it's left even sort of the best doctors with this deficit in knowledge and how that kind of perpetuates this, this stereotype, even, even if people like didn't come into medical school with that stereotype, I think that there's this way in which just like working in the system probably like imbues that within them. Well, it's, it is really interesting having kind of come through and been in that system. So for me, for example, I teach other health professionals, including many, many doctors in different venues. And one of the words that I have completely expunged from my vocabulary, and I did this long ago as a midwife, but really try to encourage health professionals to completely expunge, is actually one of the first two words that we see when we see our patient's chart and it's chief complaints. So we talk about women and women are going to make most of the medical visits. So every woman's chart who goes into a doctor's office says CC or chief complaint. And I think that when we see somebody as complaining um, rather than I see CC as chief concern, right? What is really concerning this woman? And it just Mm -hmm. flips the script, right? If we're talking about our patients as complainers, and then the statistics are that like 45% of women with a, a, an autoimmune disease, for example, are going to be dismissed as chronic complainers. And we're seeing CC. Like, how does that reinforce right from the beginning that right. these, are, these are complaints? No, no, no. This is not complaints. These are legitimate concerns and experiences. And there's so much entrenched in medical language th- that I think we just take these things for granted and don't realize that they are actually impacting how we think about people. There's so much in internal medicine, family medicine, kind of turfing the gynecology appointments because either the medical students or residents don't feel like they know enough about them or feel uncomfortable. I mean, even in medical school, you have these sort of um, fake patients and they're the people that you learn to do gynecology exams on. And fortunately, I mean, I had gone into medical school with 25 years of doing pelvic exams because of being a midwife, but the amount of discomfort and giggling and just avoiding those classes is so incredible. And there's not really any deconstruction that happens Mm -hmm. around it. So I think people just avoid it. And you, you know, you talked about the limitations of knowledge based on research. Talk more about that. Um, I know, for example, there's a lot of bias toward researching pharmaceuticals in men versus the amount that's done in women, yet women are given the same doses and the same drugs. What did you uncover about that? Yeah, I think this was another area where I think I was like, oh, well, it must have been fixed because <laughs> it's been a while. But Yeah, no. <laughs> but no, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Was, so, you know, in the early 90s, this was really put on the radar and there were congressional hearings about fact that women were underrepresented in clinical research. The FDA was excluding all women of childbearing age from being in early phase drug trials. And, you know, there were obviously some like really important steps taken and, you know, federal law now requires women to be included in NIH funding, um, funded research. But I think one of the things that I was surprised to realize was just how, even though a lot of things have changed since then, some have not. And, and one of them being that even though women are still are, are now usually included in most studies, there's 
still not sort of this norm that says like we should always kind of check to see if there are any differences um, and report that in our published results. And it's only, you know, in the last couple few years that the NIH has really started to tackle the problem of the overwhelming male bias in preclinical research that still exists. So um, there's no no federal law saying that researchers need to use female mice and, and most of them still don't. There's it's still sort of the norm to just use male mice and obviously that's the you know, research is but preclinical research is kind of laying the foundation for future research into um, drugs and understanding disease mechanisms. And and that's sort of just beginning to be a problem that's starting to be solved. And it's really important. I mean, 50% of women over 50 are on at least two pharmaceuticals chronically. Most Mm -hmm. Americans have taken several drugs in the past month, pharmaceuticals, and women are disproportionately likely to have side uh, adverse reactions and serious ones compared to men. And yet we're kind of treating women like they're small men. And not even that. We're not even really adjusting doses that significantly. Right. And, uh, you know, women have different what in, in medicine or chemistry we call pharmacokinetics. So the way that our bodies process pharmaceuticals is actually very different. We have slower colon transit time. We have different kidney extraction and elimination time. Interestingly, um, new research is coming out that shows that depending on the place we are in our cycle, if we're still cycling, or the time of day that a woman takes a drug can have a huge impact on the safety of that drug for her. And we don't see those same changes in men, yet none of this until very recently has, has been looked at at all. And it's not really changing drug standards. Was it, was it your book where you talked about, is it Xanax and women having more car accidents on Xanax? Uh, it's Ambien, Ambien. Oh, Ambien. Tell us about that. That was fascinating. Yeah. So I think it was in 2014, the FDA announced that they were slashing the recommended dosage of Ambien in half for women. Um, and that was after New studies had been done that showed that because women take longer to clear the drug from their system, they still, I think it was like 15% of them compared to only 3% of men would have a blood level the next morning that could be high enough to impair driving. And the FDA had actually gotten several hundred reports of people over the years getting into car accidents the next morning. Yeah, it was like 750. I went and looked and it was like 750 or 760 serious car accidents because women were essentially driving drunk. And they tell you on the on the insert, which who reads that anyway, um, not to drive within eight hours of taking the medication. But if you're taking the drug at 11 and then you're going to work at seven the next morning, you're still within eight hours. And if you're a woman you know, that could be 10 hours or 12 hours that you need to clear it. Yeah, it's amazing. And what also was amazing was just that, like, that drug was approved in the early 90s. And it's not like there wasn't the data to suggest that already. At, at the time, the FDA had, like, on the application had made a comment saying, you know, there seems to be this difference where the blood levels reached in women are higher than men. But that was just sort of commented on and we moved on and approved it for everybody. And it took, you know, 25 years to realize that that actually was 
putting women at risk. You know, there's a statistic that says that it takes 17 years for bench research to trickle out to community medical practice. And this yeah. is just like a stunning example of that gap, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I have a question for you. You, like I, you know, I grew up in a feminist home. My mom was a, a very active politically. She took me to see like Bella Abzug when I was five years old. I can still remember that, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, from my earliest childhood that I can remember, access to contraception was hugely important. And I read, you know, about Emma Goldman and learned about all these different women who had been arrested and the fact that we couldn't even send birth control literature through the mail, let alone have birth control legally. And so we know the implications of back alley abortions and even, you know, not back alley, but not great ones um, on women's lives. So let's talk about the pill because women fought really long and hard to get access to the pill. And yet we also know that there is a lot of literature that suggests there are some significant harms that we need to be aware of. What did you uncover in your research and, and how has that shaped your thinking around the pill? Yeah, I actually, you know, didn't focus too much on this in my book research. Um, I sort of justified like leaving most sort of routine reproductive health out of the book actually, just because I felt like, I don't know, there's just like so much more that so many factors go into reproductive health, you know, sort of the, the external factors to the medical system because of all of the political meddlings that kind of make that story a little bit unique. And also, so I just wanted to focus on, keep the focus on the care that women receive when they're actually sick, as opposed to just sort of the routine management of their reproductive lives that of course many of us have to rely on the medical system for or, or do rely on the medical system for um but i yeah I, I touched a little bit on the pill um when it comes to you know i i do think that one of the unfortunate things about this all of the political meddling in reproductive health is that it sort of overshadows the problems that kind of stem from within the system um, and sort of leaves us in this position where we are constantly defending just our access to birth control at all and maybe not having those conversations about, well, if we had a medical system that really worked for us and um, really took women's symptoms seriously, took women's right to birth control and birth control that is you know, doesn't have side effects and, and, uh, would we have something better than the various forms of hormonal contraception that we have? And I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, it's sort of crazy when you think about like how little sort of progress has been made in coming up with new forms of contraception, you know, all, all we sort of have are variations on, um, the same basic idea, and yeah, as you say, there are real side effects for a lot of women. I think we certainly see a sort of tendency to not take women's, you know, a lot of women go off the pill um, once they start it. And I think there's this tendency to say, you know, oh, well, they're just like, you know, 
they read the side effects and it's all in their head and, and not just kind of trusting women to know their bodies and know when something's not working for them. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it again, it wasn't something that I explored super in depth in the book, but certainly think that a lot of the problems that I talk about in the book can definitely be applied to, to that context too, and, and are very relevant. What were some of the biggest ahas that you had in writing the book? We've talked about a couple, but were there any just things that just blew your mind? You're like, wow, I cannot. Where you just kind of stopped and you're you're like reading it to someone else going, can you believe this? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so many. Um, One big one that I think was a a sort of moment like that and was also um, a really kind of helpful aha moment in that it kind of helped me understand the problem a lot better was learning about um, the fact that diagnostic errors just have not been really on the radar and until pretty recently at all. And we really have like very little kind of systemic research looking at how often doctors get the diagnosis wrong or, you know, miss the diagnosis entirely. Um, and reading the, the research on that and, and, reading the insight from experts in diagnostic errors who point out that doctors tend to to be very overconfident in their diagnostic skills and and that that overconfidence is not necessarily just like because they're, you know, just individually very arrogant. It's just that by and large, they're not getting the feedback they need. So they just assume that they got it right um, unless they hear otherwise. And and usually they only hear otherwise if like a patient comes back to them and tells them that they got it wrong. And so I think that was really kind of helpful in, in understanding how this problem could be really self-perpetuating where, you know, to go back to the autoimmune example, if you have a woman who's going to four or five doctors over as many years and being told she's a chronic complainer, when she ultimately does get the right diagnosis, hopefully, you know, those first doctors she saw usually don't get the memo about that. And so they continue to have that impression that she was really just a chronic complainer. And, and I think that in turn really affects how they view, you know, the next woman who comes into their office. It's so true. And it's, I think that brings us to an important other conversation within your book and that I'm certainly having with my audience and women is that on the one hand, we are told that so much is in our heads or our imagination. And on the other hand, we've got this sort of like double edged sword in that we're also told to not challenge authority that the doctor knows. I mean, like my grandmothers and even my mother's generation to some extent, although my mom's not like this, but in general are like, well, just trust the doctor, honey, or do what the doctor says, or, you know, why are you questioning the doctor? And then we're also taught to be so polite. And if you're sick and going into the doctor for symptoms that you're having, that may be actually pretty concerning, you also feel vulnerable so what was your um, kind of uh, observation of the, of the research around women not speaking up? What do you think um, some of the issues are and, and some of the ways that women can actually address that to be part of the change so that doctors are hearing about their mistakes and so that we are getting diagnoses in a timely way? Yeah, this, this was something that was surprising to me, um, or I guess, I don't know, 
it probably shouldn't have been surprising, but yeah, I was struck to, to realize sort of how even women who are highly educated and, you know, pretty privileged, like people of, of, and my generation, you know, pretty young women who, yeah, compared to earlier generations probably don't have quite as much of that like doctor as God (laughs) mentality still, you know, do put a lot of trust in medical experts and find it very difficult when confronted with somebody in a white coat who's saying, you know, nothing's wrong to really push back. Um, and I, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what you would say about this, but I, it, I feel like maybe doctors just like don't realize how much power they have in that situation because I don't know. I think that's like a really hard thing to do. I think for even, as I said, even the like most empowered patient, quote unquote. And one of the consequences of that, that I think is that a lot of women kind of keep these experiences to themselves and, and don't maybe talk about them or sort of internalize that dismissal from the doctor. Um, or even if there's, they sort of question it, kind of assume that it was just like bad luck or that they could have done something to advocate for themselves better. Um, and so one of my real hopes for the book is that it will sort of encourage women to start opening up about those experiences because I think that so many more women do have them than then realize that, you know, I think they sort of think like it's just me and really sort of need to get that validation that it's happening to other people to realize that that's not the case. But yeah, I mean, I know that you had a recent episode with some, some tips, which I thought were really on point for how to get your doctor to take you seriously. And, um, I think I'm like very much, you know, in favor of giving women those kind of skills and hopefully sort of by giving them some of this knowledge about the the limitations of medicine that will imbue sort of a healthy skepticism that maybe will help empower them to kind of push back a little bit more. Um, While at the same time, I think it's really important to sort of, you know, not put or at least acknowledge that like then we're putting the burden on sort of individual women. Exactly. It's really complicated. And interestingly, um, do you know Amy Cuddy's work on the whole Wonder Woman pose and like how you stand can really increase your sense of confidence or some studies have looked at the color that women wear can increase a woman's confidence in her perception of being powerful. So red, for example, But other studies have shown things like, for example, women who stand in um, a meeting, let's say it's a job interview or a meeting of any kind and stand in that power position or women who wear red are considered overly pushy and overly bossy. So it's like the damned if you do and damned if you don't. And, you know, from, from a medical training perspective, it's really interesting because I went into medical training having been a home birth midwife for over 20 years. And so many of the women who seek home birth, many women have a natural or more organic philosophy, but I would say equally, if not more, end up in that, on that path because they've had a bad medical encounter in the past and they just don't trust that system. Or, they, or my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law is, has an MD from Harvard, an MPH from Harvard, and was going to conventional obstetrics care um, with my, her baby, my grandchild, 
And there were a series of medical errors in lab interpretation that were made that told her she had two different medical conditions that she didn't have. And she ended up saying, I can't, I can't trust this situation um, and ended up having her babies at home with me because of those medical errors. So, you know, I see, I see um, so many complexities from the fact that when I started medical school at Yale, we were told not, this was not tacit. We were told directly, you are the top 2% of intellects in the country, if not in the world. We were not told you might make mistakes. We were not told that dealing with error as a, that you can't be perfect, right? You can't have all the answers. We were really told you're going to learn 200,000 facts. You're the top 2% and you're going to succeed. And so when you go and in, into practice, there is a tremendous amount of pressure to get it right and very little, if any, skill set for just being human and human error and how to deal with that. And we sort of had a lecture on the importance of apologizing when you make a mistake, but it wasn't from the importance of apologizing. It was from the statistic that doctors who apologize get sued less. I mean, think about that. It's not because you care and want to heal the relationship. It's like, this is how you can protect yourself. And then other statistics look at, um, you know, the problem with doctor burnout is huge right now. It's just huge. And it's largely women who are burning out. Men are too. The suicide rate amongst women doctors is is statistically higher than the suicide rate in any other population of women. And the women who are most likely to get burned out statistically are the ones who have the most empathy and the most compassion are the most careful about not making mistakes. And so the system doesn't really support that. So you end up with those women doctors more likely to leave the system and the ones that are less concerned about crossing the T's and dotting the I's and having less compassion staying in, it's such, it's a mess at every, right. at, at every end. And, you know, for me, um, in medical practice, I really come to my medical practice much more with the spirit of midwifery, which is a woman-centered, very mm-hmm. egalitarian, not me having power over, but if there's any information I have, you know, helping women women have power too, not me having power over. I don't own a wear, white coat. I don't wear a white coat. I even have a blog on why I don't. And yet in my practice, I find that sometimes educating patients to take that more leadership role. I mean, obviously when people are sick and exhausted, sometimes people want just to, be, you know, just tell me what to do. And I'm happy to help fill that role too. But getting patients to call me by my first name is really hard. The entrenched Dr. Rom or Dr. Aviva is so pervasive that there's a reinforced hierarchy. It's really complicated. I think that um, we have so acculturated ourselves to these hierarchies in medicine as patients too that it's very hard to break out of that. And I, and I think it is really hard to be sick, right? It's... Th- all these new chronic illnesses that we're facing, you practically have to get an MD. I mean, you have to know that your doctor's making a mistake, which means you have to have become educated yourself. And then then your doctor might say something like, well, where did you learn that? Uh, Where did you get your medical degree, Dr. Google? I mean, I've had patients who have told me their doctors have said stuff like that to them. So, yeah. They're one of those double binds where you basically have to be in 
educated and and yet if you're too educated then that's seen seen as like a threat to the authority of the doctor and same as how you know if you're too assertive you'll be that difficult patient and really just can't get out of it. Right. I just read some studies on, um, I've been reading a lot about hidden illness, which I know, or invisible illness. I know you talk about that in your book too. And one study which looked at women with chronic pain and or fibromyalgia and the kind of somersaults that women do because so many people with chronic pain are dismissed as just being drug seeking or looking for excuses to not work and all these just horrible you know, accusations that are made that women find themselves in the bind of if they appear too unwell, then it looks like they are seeking like drug seeking. But if they appear too well, like if they dress too nicely to their doctor's appointment or look too put together, then it looks like they are, they must be fine. So they couldn't possibly need it. And so women are actually trying to figure out like, well, how should I appear when I go to my doctor's office to be believed and talk more about what you discovered about invisible illness and some of the challenges women are facing. Yeah. I mean, I, I I talk a lot about that in the context of, of chronic pain and chronic fatigue syndrome. And, um, yeah, I was also very struck by that, uh, real trap that women are in where, you know, a lot of women with chronic pain talk about like, as I say, being sort of anti-hysterical to the point of like actually being under-reporting their pain. So being dishonest about how much pain they're in, which of course, if like the goal is to get your doctor to take your pain more seriously, that's not going to help you either. And, you know, it's, it is this sort of like never ending battle to kind of try to thread that needle. And for, for folks with conditions like fibromyalgia that are, you know, sort of considered medically unexplained, like, yeah, I think this will sort of continue to just be a problem until there, you know, biomarkers or some sort of objective proof to, to show what's going on, because otherwise, something like fibromyalgia, you know, you, the only evidence for the disease is, is these patients, most of them women's report of, of pain and, so you, you know, it's sort of, if you're not treated as a reliable reporter of your symptoms, that's going to be this, this ongoing challenge to, sh- to prove that you're really sick. And I think we see a sort of similar thing with, for women with autoimmune diseases, um, and trying to get doctors to take their fatigue seriously. Fatigue is sort of one of the common symptoms across a range of autoimmune diseases, um, but is like pain is, you know, very subjective and, and really has to be communicated by, by the patient. And, and I think that becomes a very hard thing for women to do to kind of prove that, you know, this, now this is like really kind of functional, like fatigue that is interfering with my daily life. It's not just like, you know, being stressed or tired from not getting enough sleep and, so yeah, for all of these kind of chronic illnesses that are sort of largely invisible and, and based on these subjective symptoms, I think that's just that ongoing battle of, of proving that you're really sick. You know, one of the um, statistics that was shocking to me about, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, I was working on an article and um, 
I had just kind of taken for granted that people knew that fibromyalgia was in fact a real medical condition with diagnostic codes and a pathophysiology that was now at least a little bit understood or that chronic fatigue syndrome likewise was a real medical diagnosis. I mean, I just took that for granted and I was doing some research and discovered that something like 70% of medical schools are not teaching that these are real diagnoses and that most doctors, in fact, still consider these to be in women's heads, that they're not actual legitimate medical concerns uh, or legitimate medical diseases as real as the flu or pneumonia or migraines. You know, so that got me thinking back on my own medical education. And I realized I had never been taught about either of those in medical school. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you talk about in an article that you wrote recently and published in Huffington Post and I love on the page, it says, listen to women, trust us when we say we're sick, is that, um, let me see if I'm going to pull this up and say, it is those within medicine who have the ability and bear the responsibility to solve these problems. And that I couldn't agree with you more and certainly trying to do my part to help that happen. But it's going to be a slow tide, I think. And we definitely see the Me Too movement as a powerful shift in women being heard I'm actually um, in my next book using hashtag medical me too. And mm. because I have like you in writing your book um, over the years and every day in my email inbox on Facebook, hear stories of women who ultimately sometimes even come to wonder if they're, if it is in their head, right? This incredible pervasive self-doubt. What do you feel based on what you've heard from women and what you've studied in the book, what do you think needs to happen for these shifts to happen faster? Because it's not happening fast enough. I mean, autoimmune disease can be deadly for women. We can't wait 25 years for this to happen. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I am totally with you on a medical <laughs> Me Too movement. I, I really do feel like there's so much potential for women's stories to make some real changes, um, or at least, you know, sort of push the system to recognize the problem and then, and then make the changes that need to happen. Um, you know, as I said, I, I think that there is this silence around these experiences that is damaging because it leaves individual women sort of wondering if they're crazy and <laughs> alone, but also is damaging because I think it, it kind of hides the problem. And I, so I think that, as women sort of speak up about these experiences and see that they are not alone and this, that these problems are sort of rooted in these systemic problems, that will be powerful and validating for women. And I think it will also really help healthcare providers see that this is a real problem that, you know, I, I don't think most recognize, you know, I think I was reading a study fairly recently that kind of surveyed doctors about what biases they thought they had. And gender bias was actually at the very bottom of all of the biases. I mean, they didn't really cop to many biases at all, but it was only like 6% of doctors who, who thought that they held any kind of gender bias. And so I think that just sort of showing the extent of the problem so that it's at least recognized as a problem is definitely like the first step. And I think that women's stories can definitely be a, a powerful part of that. And that, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I wouldn't say I was <laughs> super optimistic um, through a lot of the book research, but I was reminded by many experts that I interviewed that throughout medical history, women's activism has been very important in creating changes to the medical system. And so we shouldn't sort of discount our power as patients to kind of demand those kind of changes um, and think that it's not, you know, not worth, not worth doing because as we saw in the early nineties, that, that kind of last time that this was kind of put on the public radar in a big way, even though it didn't fix the problem entirely, it certainly helped create some really much needed progress. And, and so I think that there's definitely opportunity to kind of continue the fight one of the things that, um, you know, I just want to reiterate that you say, Maya, um, listen to women, trust us when we say we're sick, is how do you feel that women can regain their own trust in themselves in the setting of repeatedly being told, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you. And uh, I feel like there's so much about women's history and women's culture that has led us to doubt ourselves? What do you think might be one thing women can do to re- retain or regain trust? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's just so much that teaches us to, to second guess. And I hope that, you know, just sort of realizing that this happens to other people will maybe be helpful. And um, I was definitely like, one of the things I was inspired by was the really vibrant patient communities that exist online that I think, you know, are doing such good in terms of just like sharing knowledge and tips and very practical, concrete advice for each other. Um, but also can really serve as that sort of, as a way of, of, of women having their experiences validated by other people after having been, you know, devalued so much in, in medicine, um, which I think can be empowering. Um, and just, you know, knowing this history, I think was, has been really helpful to me. And, and, you know, I know that I will, in my interactions with the medical system, you know, knock on wood, I won't have too many of them, but (laughs) just like, having that perspective on, on the limits of medical knowledge, I think is important to being able to enter that space with a a lot more confidence in myself and and what my own body knows, you know. You know, when I was in medical training in just in one three year period um, to, you know, to kind of highlight what you're saying, I think we think medicine has the answers and knows and that there's so much certainty, but it changes so often. And so in this one three-year period, the dosing and regulation around really how much aspirin we should be giving preventatively changed from 325 to 81 milligrams as a much safer dose, whether and how often we should do pelvic exams routinely on women at all, how often we should do pap smears. In fact, it was also found that we should never be doing pap smears on women under 21 because we had done so much damage to women's services over inappropriately treating cervical changes at that young age. The diabetes ranges, cholesterol ranges, 
whether men should get PSA, which is a testing for prostate cancer. I mean, like all these things had changed in three years completely so that if you were doing medicine and hadn't kept up, you would be doing things wrong and harmfully. And to remember that it's just an evolving, imperfect science and that all anybody knows is guided by what we know at the minute. And it could be different in six months. It's really... And I think, you're, you know, the, the piece about the history is so important for me as a midwife and going into medical school, keeping what we do now in the context of how this entire system evolved is really important because it does shed a light on the fact that it wasn't that long ago that it was a completely male-dominated patriarchal system, that the word hysteria, which comes from the word uterus, was based on women being irrational because our uterus was traveling around our body. That female circumcision, you know, this was in the early 1900s. Female circumcision was commonly done for all kinds of ills and problems. When we take it all into perspective, it's like, hmm, hmm, maybe we don't all have it quite as right Right. as we think we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it'd be so helpful if if doctors all got that (laughs) training. You know, I think that it seems as though that like sort of lack of historical perspective is, is a big part of the problem here where medicine sort of forgets where it came from. And so, you know, has this continues to have this kind of unearned sense of arrogance about <laughs> what it knows and kind yeah. of forgets that like previous generations also were just as arrogant about what they knew and look where we are. Right. They didn't know. Yeah. I mean, people weren't using DES or thalidomide because they thought it wasn't safe. They, right. They, or, or Lysol douching. That's a whole other <laughs> that I talk about in my book. It's just shocking. So, Maya, it sounds like this book has been really revelatory for you to write, which is exciting and fun to hear about. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. Um, I learned so much <laughs> that I didn't know. So I hope it will be... I hope it will be the same for other people. And especially I hope it will be this uh, sort of wake up call for women of my generation. Because as I said, I think I had the idea that a lot of these problems were firmly in the past. And so it was shocking to realize just how, how relevant they still are. Maya's book is Doing Harm. It is a powerful cover of a pharmaceutical. And for those of you who don't know, one of the um, agreements we all make still in going into medicine is the Hippocratic Oath, which says, first do no harm. We put on our white coats and we, some medical schools like Yale, like mine, allow us to create our own Hippocratic Oath as well. But doing harm is really such a powerful title, Maya. And it's a wonderful book that takes us through history of medicine, women's stories, And I think, you know, so much of what you say, Maya, is it does really help women feel less alone. And within that feeling less alone, it's not like you have to just rely on your own voice. You have a whole sea of voices that are coming with you to that medical appointment that you can be lifted up by and empowered by. So Maya, thank you so much. I know it takes so much work and research to write a book like this and so much time. Thank you for putting the time and energy into bringing this important work to women. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. Tell everybody the best way to get your book. Oh, um, well, you can go into your local bookstore. You could order it on Amazon or um, 
other booksellers. If you go to mydoosandberry.com, you can find out more. And we'll put all the links for getting Maya's book below this episode. And thank you, ladies, for listening and possibly some gentlemen, too. And I will talk to you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.